All right, brothers and sisters, how are you this morning? Good. Peace be with you. We are getting better at this every week. It just, man, I'm a born and raised non-denominational Pentecostal charismatic with a little bit of a liturgical soul. Okay. So it just gives me a great deal of joy when we uh, do these things. Okay. I'm in Jonah chapter three. If you have Bibles, I'll give you a minute to turn there. Jonah is a beautiful book. It's after Obadiah. Pastor Brady says, if you know where Obadiah is in your Bible, you're going straight to heaven. That's it. You know, so it's right after Obadiah, right before Micah, a beautiful book, the book of Jonah is, that was penned as a kind of provocation to the people of God living in exile, trying to make sense of their situation. And so Jonah is this sort of uh, almost parabolic book that as we've seen in the first two chapters, it packs a very dense amount of theology in a really short space. And so it's a brilliant book. Now we're starting to turn the corner into Jonah 3, Jonah 4. There's four chapters. So this is kind of the home stretch here. And many of the themes that have been laid down in the book of Jonah heretofore are about to get amplified and tied up in some really important ways. So it's Jonah chapter 3. I've given you now a minute and a half of me just talking and setting things up so that you could get there in your Bibles. If you're there, holler at me and say, I'm there. It's like almost all of you. This is good. We're finding our stride here, New Life East. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. Would you just begin as we come to the scriptures, the written word, would you begin to let adoration rise in your heart for the living word? Oh, we love you. We love you. We love you. Where would we be without you? Whom have we in heaven but you? Oh God, you are our God. As the psalmist says, earnestly we seek you. Our souls thirst for you and our bodies long for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, your love, O oh God, is better than life itself. It's better than life itself. And your kindness provokes repentance in us. Your goodness awakens us. It awakens us. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. What can, more can we say to you, God? We just need you and we want you and you are our all and you are in all. We pray that your spirit would be strong among us this morning. Move among us in power, we pray. We thank you that there is not a person in this building, that the whole gracious intention of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has not been turned towards every day, every moment of their lives. We thank you that there, are no, there is nobody on the periphery with you. Nobody on the edges, nobody on the margins, nobody on the fringes, but all of us are addressed and all of us are called and all of us are looked upon. We're looked upon with your grace and your favor. We pray that we would feel that to be true this morning. More, that we would know it to be true in our spirits that we're addressed by you. So come, oh God, we pray. We ask that as we break open the scriptures that you would let new light and new insight and understanding spring forth from the word insight and wisdom and understanding that not even the preacher could have planned for this morning. We're asking that it would just transcend planning. Take over, Jesus, we pray. Take over. We're asking this morning that the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable 
In your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give to you. And so Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was a very large city, just like there was a very large storm and a very large fish. It's a very large city. Everything in the book of Jonah is kind of uh, amplified. It's almost comic in its proportions. Everything big, big fish, big storms, the big call of God, big city, big, big, big. It's all big. And it took three days to go through it. Do you remember the last time we heard about three days in the book of Jonah? The fish, that's right. So when you hear this part of Jonah, you ought to be thinking about the experience that Jonah just had with the fish. This book, it wraps around itself. All of the stories are tucked inside one another. And so Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It will be turned on its ear. The Ninevites believed God. What? The city of blood. Violent city, angry city. That city that's so wicked. Its wickedness is risen up before God. A stench in his nostrils. Jonah starts going in, preaching. And the Ninevites believed God. Maybe a little bit like Abraham way back when. The scripture says that Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as... Oh boy. So now something really profound is at work, isn't it? The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, the most powerful guy in this evil city, he rose up from his throne, and he took off his royal robes, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let people or animals, <laughs> herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth and let everyone, people and animals, were led to believe, call urgently on God and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger and we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he, what's the word? He relented and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. This is kind of take two for Jonah, isn't it? You remember in Jonah chapter one, that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And when it comes to him, that word says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. And preach against it because its wickedness, its vileness has come up before me. And Jonah gets up like the Lord told him to, but instead of obeying, he runs in the opposite direction. Heads for a port in Joppa where he can get on a boat going to Tarshish. Tarshish in the ancient world is diametrically opposed in every conceivable way to Nineveh. Nineveh is big and bloodthirsty and violent and brutal. Tarshish is like going to a resort town. Tarshish is like, that's the mission that any of us would sign up for. Yeah, send me to Maui, God. That sounds great. Like, I'll go there, okay? That's what Jonah's doing. 
And the Lord works, as we learn, to arrest his prophet. He threatens to engulf the ship. Jonah comes to his senses and goes, this is my fault. So he has the, uh, he has the, the ship, his shipmates hurl him in the depths of the sea and a great fish comes. And from the belly of the fish, Jonah pleads for mercy and the Lord spits him out on the dry ground. Now, the thing about Jonah in chapter 2 is that you get the impression when you're reading Jonah chapter 2 that Jonah thinks that just by offering this repentance to God, just by coming to a place of sort of contrition, that the Lord will deliver him and then he'll just be able to go right back to Jerusalem. And he actually says that in the prayer. If you read carefully in Jonah 2, he doesn't say, you know, the Lord's going to deliver me and I will fulfill what God asked me to do. He says, the Lord will deliver me and I with shouts of grateful praise will go to the temple and sacrifice. And He's like, I'm definitely getting away <laughs> from Nineveh. And then we read that the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And has that word of the Lord changed at all? No, it's the same thing. The Lord comes to him and says to him, I want you to proclaim to Nineveh the message that I give to you. And this time, the God of the second chance now has given Jonah a second chance. And Jonah, rather than getting up and fleeing, Jonah gets up and he heads into the, the belly of the beast. And what he carries on his lips, and this is the fascinating thing, what he carries on his lips is a message of unequivocal destruction, all right? Jonah is not going to Nineveh saying, hey, Nineveh, you guys have had a bad stretch lately. But if you return to the Lord, God will have mercy on you and we'll all live happily ever after. No, he doesn't do that. Scripture says that inside this big city, it took three days to get into the heart of it. Jonah goes in about a day's journey. And Jonah, like a rabbi walking the streets of Berlin in 1942, Jonah is walking in saying, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Literally, it'll be turned on its ear, changed inside out. And the Ninevites hearing this message of destruction that's coming from Jonah, it grips them in the soul. They go, wait, what? We're going to be overturned. We're in dire straits. The judgment of the Almighty has reached us. And all of a sudden, just like that, Jonah's preaching, which again is not very nice preaching, okay? This isn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's not that. It's like you are about to get clobbered. And something of that message cuts the Ninevites straight to the soul. And it begins to awaken repentance, alarm in them. And they start going, hey, did you hear the news? There's a prophet from Israel and he's here and he's saying we're about to be overturned. Go tell your friends and your neighbors. And pretty soon this city, a city of about 120,000 people, is set like wildfire. Repentance is spreading through the city. And the repentance is so profound that when it reaches, when word of this message of impending judgment reaches the king of the city, the king of the city himself is undone by it. Wait, what? Yahweh God has said that judgment's coming to us. And the scripture says that the king himself actually got down off of his throne and he covered himself in sackcloth and ashes like the king of the bloodthirsty city now is on his knees before Yahweh saying, Yahweh, have mercy on me. 
Yahweh, have mercy on me. I don't know what we were thinking. I don't know how the whole situation ran away with us. I'm sorry for the blood that we've shed and I'm sorry for the violence that we've engaged in. I'm sorry for how bent out of proportion this city. We've wandered away from your righteousness, oh God. And from the ashes, the king of Nineveh issues a decree to the whole city. And the repentance that he calls for is so profound that it reaches even to the animals. Like not only does political life in Nineveh come to a screeching halt, but when we tell the animals that they have to start fasting, then really life has come to a screeching halt. And that doesn't mean a lot to us, again, living in modern times, but to have the animals fast, animals were primary economic drivers in the ancient world. So what the king of Nineveh is doing is he's saying, everything stops. We're going to self-inflict a cutting off of our lives for the sake of returning to God. Brothers and sisters, this is as thoroughgoing a repentance as we have ever seen in the Old Testament text of Scripture. And it was the Ninevites that did it. Turn their hearts back to God. And they start saying, and there's no, by the way, there's no presumption in their repentance. One of the things that's interesting about Jonah's repentance, when you look at it in Jonah chapter 2, is that he presumes that God will be merciful upon him. Yeah, I'm going to turn my heart back to God, but I know because I'm part of the covenant people of God, God's going to forgive me and cleanse me and give me a fresh start and everything's going to be okay. There's something, I'm not saying it's totally disingenuous from Jonah, but there's something a little bit presumptuous about Jonah's repentance, but not with the Ninevites. The Ninevites are coming back to God and going, God, we know that you have to do this for us. The Ninevites are coming to God saying, who knows? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will have mercy on us. God will forgive us. Maybe, just maybe, but even if he doesn't, it's right for us to repent. There's like this purity that grips the Ninevites. I want to suggest to you this morning that what the Ninevites are doing is a picture of genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. That with genuine repentance... Life, brothers and sisters, comes to a screeching halt. Okay? When we engage in genuine repentance, there are no more excuses. There is no more blaming. And there is no more self-justifying. Okay? The Ninevites are not trying to prop up their situation. The Ninevites have realized that their situation is already desolate, and so they tell the truth about it. When we're in genuine repentance, life comes to a screeching halt. There are no more excuses, there is no more blaming, and there is no more self-justifying. And maybe the most profound, outside of this book, the profound, one of the most profound moments of repentance in the Old Testament text comes in the book of 2 Samuel. Do you remember the story of David? David, whom God, is, God had appointed, he was the youngest of his brothers. And the Lord plucked him out and appointed him as king over Israel. God's hand was on David's life, David's military victories, all that David set his due, his hand to do, God blessed and he succeeded. And the scripture says in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that in the spring of the times when kings go off to war, David was on the, he was just lazing around in Jerusalem. And he saw a woman bathing on the roof of her house and he said to one of his attendants, like this is a profound moral lapse is about to happen for David. 
And David says to one of his attendants, go and get that woman and bring her to me. A violent act. A violent act. And so the attendant goes and gets Bathsheba and brings Bathsheba back to David's palace. And David, David takes advantage of her. She becomes pregnant by David. And when David realizes what he's done, what he'd done, instead of repenting of it, David doubles down on his mistake. He goes, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to find her husband who is fighting my battles for me. We're going to find her husband and we're going to see if we can't bring him back to the city. And let's get him drunk and let's have him lie with his wife. And then he'll think that he was the one that got her pregnant and I can cover my tracks in this way. And Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, will not do it. He refuses to be with his wife at a time of war. And so David goes, okay, if that's how it's going to be, then this is what I want you to do, he says to his military commander. I want you to put Uriah at the front of the line where the fighting is the fiercest. And when I tell you to give the command to cause our troops to go into retreat and leave Uriah all by himself, and he does, and Uriah is struck down David brings Bathsheba into his home, comforts her. And the scripture says that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. But David is hardened in his heart. He's hardened in his heart. And one day the prophet Nathan goes to David and he says, uh, David, I want to tell you a story. David says, shoot. And the prophet Nathan says to him, there was this town. And in the town there was a poor man and a rich man. The rich man had flocks and herds and Money, he had everything that he needed, but this poor man, he had barely enough to sustain himself. And he had one little lamb. This lamb grew up in his household. It was like a daughter from him, to him. The, daughter, the lamb ate from his table and drank from his cup. He loved the little lamb. And one day the rich man had a friend visit him from out of town. And instead of the rich man taking from his stuff, the rich man went to the poor man and stole the ewe lamb and sacrificed that and used that as the feast. And David, all of a sudden, it says, the scripture says that he burns with anger. And he says, that man must die for what he's done. What a vile and despicable act. And Nathan knows he's got him now. Nathan goes, don't you understand, David? You are that man. And all of a sudden, in that moment, David is gripped with it. He sees it. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And this brokenness takes place. This brokenness takes place in David. And from that place where David is completely undone and he realizes that everything that he had done in the succeeding weeks and months had been a repudiation of the goodness of God in his life, from that place of brokenness, David pens some of the most beautiful words in the scripture. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great trans compassion, blot out my transgressions, David says. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely, David says, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create 
in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And you don't delight in sacrifice, he says, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. But the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O oh God, will not despise. Brothers and sisters, that's genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is we are not blaming anymore. Genuine repentance is we're not looking at what everybody else has done. Genuine repentance is we're not self-justifying anymore and we're not trying to prop up this whole situation. Genuine repentance is where you come to that place of extreme brokenness. And it's not about them anymore. It's about, it's about you. It's about you. That I'm not mad at my wife or I'm not mad at my husband. I'm not mad at my kids. I'm not making this about my coworkers or my parents. I'm not making this about my church. I'm not making this about the political party that I disagree with, but I'm making it about me. Now it's about me. The spotlight is on me. And we realize that unless God has mercy on us, we are cut off. <laughs> and we need God more than anything. And I'm telling you that the life of God does not flow in our lives until we come to that place like the king of Nineveh and all of Nineveh came to. A place of repentance brokenness. Remember years ago, I was tangled up in a relational situation that just had me vexed. You ever been vexed with relationships? God almighty. Everything we were tangled up in, it just felt like we couldn't get to the bottom of it. And you try to fix it and you try to disentangle the situation. And what about this? And what about that? And so-and-so, you need to do more of that. And I remember actually feeling like Jonah said he was in Jonah chapter two, that the seaweed wrapped itself around my head, right? You know, you ever been there? You just feel like, what the heck is going on? And I remember just being in the deep with it one day. And I came to one of my friends, we grabbed lunch. So years ago, we were living in Denver. We sat down to lunch and I just began to complain to him, all of these people. Well, you won't believe what they're doing. And so-and-so is doing this. And this person is doing that. And I can't believe it. And I'm pleading my case, like waiting for a moment of sympathy from my friend, for my friend to say, Andrew, you're right. You really are being taken advantage of in this situation. You know, so, ah, got it all out. And my friend looks at me and he goes, great. We've heard about everybody else. What about you? Oh, scripture says that wounds from a friend can be trusted. Man, we need people in our lives like that, you know? And we need moments like that where we stop pointing the finger and we stop blaming and we stop making it about everybody else, but we make it about ourselves. And that moment was like a judo chop moment for me, you know? Here I am with all of this energy trying to condemn everybody else. And all of a sudden my friend, he shines the mirror on me. I go, oh, this isn't about them. It's about me. <laughs> And until I take responsibility for who I am and my part in this whole thing, I will not get unstuck. And I just, brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you this morning, there's a prophetic word in this for some of you. Just as I was praying about this this week and thinking about this message, I just got the sense that there are some of you that are profoundly relationally stuck. Marriages, kids, friendships, job situations, 
And what you keep trying to do is you keep trying to push the buttons and pull the levers of power to swing the situation to your advantage. You can't do that. Stop doing that. If you want to know how to get unstuck, the way that you get unstuck is by saying, most merciful God, I confess that I have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed, by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I have loved you with my whole heart. I have loved my neighbors as myself. I am truly sorry and I humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me and forgive me that I may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Start there. Start there. And don't do it because you're trying to get some specific outcome. God's smart. He sees through repentance like that. Oh, what you're doing is you're just repenting so that I'll change your wife's heart. What about yours? The sacrifices that God accepts are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, oh God, will not despise. This is where transformation starts. It starts here. It starts with being undone by God. It starts with us refusing to blame and make excuses and point the finger at other people. It starts there in the presence of God with being crushed. And then, and let me give you like, here's the seminal moment of transformation for those relationships that you're stuck in. It starts with you being before the Lord and then it moves out into you doing the same thing with people. This is my part in this and I'm so sorry for it. I'm sorry for my selfishness and I'm sorry for my fear and I'm sorry for the dynamics that I've put in this. I'm sorry for the years of foolish talk that I've put into this relationship or the years of neglect and I'm not blaming and I'm not making excuses. Can you please forgive me? I'm telling you, the grace of God will steal into that relationship so fast it will make your head spin. And once again, you cannot do it to try to get an outcome. You can't do it trying to manipulate that other person. Oh, if I posture my repentance just like this, what will happen then is they'll be moved in the soul and then they'll say that they're sorry for the thing that they've been doing that really bugs me. No, 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 no. See, when you come to a place of genuine repentance, life is cut off and we're not trying to manipulate the situation anymore. But what we're doing is we're offering ourselves up to the mercy of God and we're asking for mercy to break in. Brothers and sisters, it's a prophetic word to you. Some of you are stuck and the only way that you will get unstuck is by repentance. And now I want to say one more thing to you as we begin to prepare our hearts for communion. We're going to go to the table here in a minute. I want to talk not about Nineveh, but I want to talk about the prophets and the word of God for just a second. Look back down with me if you have your Bibles. Look back down at verse 2, chapter 3. The Lord says to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and what? Proclaim to it the, that, that I give you. Look down at verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest of them to the least of them put on sackcloth. 
Jonah's part in his mission is to carry the word of God as God had given him the word of God to carry. No more and no less. Jonah's role is not to provoke the Ninevites to repentance or not. Jonah's role is, to not, is not to bring about a revival. Jonah's role is not to do any of that. Jonah has one job. What's the job? To carry the word. And God has a job in that. What does God do? God watches over his word to perform his word. I want you to see this this morning, brothers and sisters, that there is our role and there is God's role. Our role is that we are witnesses of the word of God. We're witnesses of the powers of the age to come. We're witnesses of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus the Lord. That's our role. God's role is to take that word that we bear and to cause it to move forward in power in the world and in people's lives. Are you hearing me this morning? And you have to distinguish those two things. The prophet Isaiah said it so beautifully in Isaiah chapter 55. He said that as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and they do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that comes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God has a vested interest in his word. God has a vested interest in his witness. God has a vested interest in the message that he gives to his people to take. So his people carry the word and God watches over his word to perform it, to work miracles with it, to cause walls to break down, to cause cities that are hardened in their bloodthirstiness, to cause them to fall to the grounds. But here's the trick, brothers and sisters. We do not always know and we certainly cannot control what God's purpose for his word in our lives will be. And I want to say one more thing to you. That our results or lack thereof are not an indication of godliness. Now, I'm dropping dimes on you here just so you know. We don't always know and we certainly cannot control what God's purpose in putting his word on us and in us will be in our lives. And our results or lack thereof are not an indication of godliness. Okay? Now I'm about to liberate you this morning. Jonah is the most successful prophet in Israel's history. And he's a twit. Jonah, the very worst missionary. Jonah, the very worst prophet. Jonah, with at a minimum, very large gaps in his character, to use 21st century language. Jonah is a bad prophet, and he's the most successful prophet in Israel's history. Because apparently, God saw fit to perform his word in Jonah's life in just that way. But it's not an indication of Jonah's godliness. In fact, when the great revival breaks out in Nineveh, do you know who's nowhere to be found? Jonah! Everybody starts repenting and Jonah goes, crap. Sorry, it's not very churchy language, but... What? What? Go! He leaves. Jonah. Jonah. On the other hand, 
There are men in the Old Testament texts like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Prophets of God who God had by the heart. Godly men. Godly men. Who when the word, when the word came to them, it was their joy and their heart's delight. They feasted on the word. They ate the word. They lived in God's presence. They loved God. They wanted nothing more than to serve God and do God's will. And do you know what about Isaiah and Jeremiah is different from Jonah? God actually appointed Isaiah and Jeremiah to be failures. On the human level, anyway. Isaiah and Jeremiah went to people, Judah and Israel, who were wandering away from God. And God's specific mission to Isaiah and Jeremiah is he says to them, you're going to preach to these people and your preaching is actually going to accelerate the hardness of their hearts so that I can get through to my people. Isaiah and Jeremiah did not make converts. Isaiah and Jeremiah did not win people over to their side. Isaiah and Jeremiah were not leading revivals. Isaiah and Jeremiah on the human level failed. In fact, God says to them that your success will be in your failure. The extent to which the people harden themselves against your word is actually a measure of your success because that's what I've appointed you to do. Brothers and sisters, we don't know and we cannot control what God's purpose in performing his word over our lives will be. And it's not an indication, our results are not an indication of our godliness. Remember during our early years of planting a church in Denver, we planted this little tiny church with some friends, 70, 80, 90 people, and we're praying and fasting and God help us and pour your spirit out on us and move upon our community. And I remember in those days, we'd have Sunday nights. We worshiped on Sunday nights, a little building in downtown Denver. And we would have three new people come to our church. And Mandy and I would be like crying tears of joy. The Lord is moving among us. And also you've got this thing in you that goes, are we just wasting our time? Is this, oh, this is a disaster? Are we failures, you know? And this was back in 2009, 2010, 11, early days of social media. And I'd get home after Sunday night church with just a little bit of encouragement and sometimes with deep wells of discouragement. We we're trying to serve the Lord. And I'd jump on Twitter and I'd see at famous pastor from somewhere across the country who's now planted, you know, we got three new people Today, he planted three new congregations. His ministry is succeeding wildly and going around the globe and there's revival happening at his church. And I'd hear these reports that famous pastor so-and-so actually had huge gaps in his character. You know? And I'd go, God, the injustice of it all. How can you move like that in that guy's life? And we're only like, we're trying so hard, oh God. And the moment of transformation is the moment of realizing, the moment of liberation is the moment of realizing that we are not in control of the results. We're not in control of the results. What we do is we carry the word faithfully. And I'm preaching to some of you this morning. There are some of you that are so deeply discouraged this morning that your life is not working the way that you thought it would. God has led you to do this and that and the other thing. And as you're carrying his word, it just feels like it's a failure. You're not a failure. You're not a failure. You are tucked into the reality of Jesus, the Lord. And at the end of Jesus' life, it wasn't crowds of people flocking to him, but everybody deserted him at the end of his life. The life of Christ, the Lord, ended on a human level with failure. And God raised him from the dead three days later. 
And that message, that word of God has traveled the globe and it has conquered empires. It has deposed kings. It has lifted up the lowly and fed the hungry. It is transforming the world because the results do not belong to us. They belong to, they belong to God.